please, if you would, open a Bible to Mark chapter 7. And if you would, would you uh, stand as we recognize that this is not uh, merely a human composition, but was uh, inspired by the Spirit, and it is the authoritative Word of God. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, in our frailty and weakness, uh, it's hard for us uh, to attend uh, and to uh, be present, and so we ask for the graces that we need to do that, that we might receive from you uh, what you intend for us that would bear fruit in our lives and through us in the lives of others. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You may take your seats. Jesus was often in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And here Mark uh, relates uh, a fundamental disagreement about ritual purity or about keeping kosher or being clean before God. All of those ways of saying that are really the same thing. 
And it would be very easy for you to look at this and say, this is irrelevant, just to dismiss this as something that would be of interest perhaps to a scholar uh, than something related to us, because the discussion seems very far removed from life as we know it. But you'd be wrong if you did that. This is one of the most significant scenes in Mark's gospel, and it speaks to people in every era and in every culture. I want to look at it in three movements this morning. Stains make us unpresentable. Stains uh, come uh, from inside of us. And just how is it possible to have stains cleaned, our stains? So stains are unpresentable. Let me go back and just read uh, these opening words once again. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, according to the purity laws given to Moses, if you touched a dead animal or person, if you had an infectious skin disease, boils, a rash, any open sore, or uh, you touched mildew in your home, or if you had any kind of bodily discharge or you ate certain foods that weren't on the approved menu, then you became impure, defiled, stained, unclean. And that meant you couldn't come before God to worship him. You couldn't enter the presence of God. Now that strikes us as really very harsh, but if you think about it, it's maybe not as odd as it might seem at first. Over the centuries, if you wanted to develop humility in your relationship with God, you might pray on your knees. It sounds uncomfortable. And it really can be if it's a hard floor or your knees are old. But that's part of the idea. The idea is if you get low, you're recognizing that you're not God's equal. Or take fasting from food as a way to promote prayer. Your abstaining from food awakens not just a natural hunger, but it's meant to remind you of a spiritual hunger, a deeper hunger, and to create space in your, in your day for prayer. Now, these are physical actions uh, that have spiritual significance. And so the washings and efforts to eat from the right menu to avoid touching death and disease were visual aids. Uh, and a practical daily lifestyle that was intended to remind uh, the people of Israel that they couldn't enter God's presence without some form of cleansing. They needed some sort of purification to do that. And actually, we do something uh, like this as well, don't we? Um, If you're going on a date or to a job interview, you wash, you brush your teeth, You gargle with mouthwash, you comb your hair, and you put on clean clothes. You don't want to have a stain or a spot or even a hair on your clothes if you're going to an interview. And you want to smell nice, not like you've been to the gym working out. 
Um, and so these cleanliness laws are kind of the same idea of being presentable. Uh, presentable before a pure and holy uh, God. And unless you're clean, you can't be in his presence. Now, Jesus agreed with the religious uh, leaders who come to question him uh, that, in fact, we're unclean before God and unpresentable. But he disagreed with them about the source of uncleanness and how to remove it. The Pharisees thought that purity was a matter from the outside and moved inward. And Jesus said, no, it's a matter of the inside and moves outward. This is how Jesus uh, puts it in uh, verse 15. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, most people have a problem with this. They might say, well, ancient uh, people lived in a very unpredictable world, and of course they didn't have science to explain to them earthquakes and thunderstorms and solar eclipses. And so they attributed these things to the gods who had moral absolutes and were wrathful. And so it was necessary to appease them. And if anything bad happened, well, it's because the gods were punishing them. And that's why people were riddled with shame and guilt. Of course, we today have moved past all of that. There are no moral absolutes. No one knows what's right and wrong. Nobody knows about God for certain. Uh, we'll have to decide that for ourselves. And besides, everybody has value and worth. We don't see people as unclean or defiled or evil. No, we think of people as basically good. This is what we often hear people say, that if there is a God, we don't believe that he's transcendent and holy and that all people stand before him as guilty and condemned. We just don't believe that. And yet, even denying these things, we still wrestle with the deep feelings of guilt and shame. Where do they come from? Well, Franz Kafka explores this question in a story entitled The Trial. In the beginning, uh, Joseph is, well, he's having a normal life. But then he's arrested and taken into custody. And nobody tells him why he's arrested. Uh, oh, nobody tells him what he's done wrong. And so he begins to wonder, what have I done to be arrested? What am I being accused of? Well, he's never told. And he goes from one prison cell to the next, to one hearing after another, and nobody explains it. All the while, he's puzzling over his life. He's thinking, well, maybe it was for that. Have I been arrested for that? I, I did that, but that just doesn't seem like it would merit being arrested. But maybe, maybe something this happened. And he never finds out, and in the end, one of the wardens stabs him to death. Now, in one of Kafka's diaries, there's a, a line that many people think uh, relates uh, to this story, the trial. It reads this way. The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite apart from any guilt. In other words, we live in a world where we don't believe in judgment. We don't believe in sin. And yet we still feel that something is wrong with us. Kafka's on to something here. Though we've abandoned God, moral absolutes, and guilt, 
we all still feel that if we were examined, we'd be rejected. We have a deep sense, everybody has a deep sense, that we don't measure up, that we aren't acceptable, and that we actually have to prove to people uh, that uh, we are worthy and lovable and of value. Kafka's saying this, if you don't believe in sin and you don't believe in judgment and you don't believe in guilt, and yet you know that you're stained. And now you can explain this with psychology or sociology or your family background, but there's no escaping this, that we all have a sense that we're stained and that we're unpresentable. Now, both Jesus and these religious leaders he's talking to agree with the Bible's explanation of how this has come uh, to be. We all feel this way because of our idolatry and ingratitude, our disobedience and rebellion. And so no one's presentable to God. We, uh, because we've displeased God and not done what he requires of us, we have genuine, real guilt and shame. And Mark makes a point, maybe you noticed it in the readings, of talking about the oral tradition. The oral tradition was developed centuries before this conversation took place with Jesus. And it was developed to protect people from breaking God's law. And so uh, what it did is it detailed uh, uh, down to the most minute parts of life Uh, what was obedience and what was breaking the commandment. It was done the most practical uh, manner possible. And for the Pharisees and scribes, this oral tradition for them was absolutely on the same level as the Bible. It carried exactly the same authority in their uh, minds. And they, unlike the scripture, insisted everyone wash their hands. But in the law of Moses, only priests were to wash their hands. And so what they were saying in effect is that everybody needs to live like a priest. And they also, in effect, said every household should be as pure as the temple. And so great attention must be given to every kind of impurity and contamination. It must be cleaned ritually. In fact, they taught that if a non-Jew's shadow crossed the plate in which you were going to have dinner, that it needed to be washed. That had made it impure. And so the the cleansing required in the Old Testament and those added to the traditions were not really about hygiene and sanitation. This This is really strange for us because we don't have a lot of rituals like this, but actually most of them don't really involve what we would consider a good scrubbing. Uh, They uh, didn't uh, really clean very uh, much. They didn't disinfect. It was a symbolic act. And the Pharisees thought all these washings made a person clean enough to be presentable to God. Clean the outside, and the inside of the person was clean. And Jesus cites Isaiah to say that they're hypocrites because the heart is untouched. And Jesus puts it this way in verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. 
Jesus is saying it's not what you swallow that makes you unclean. It's rather, it's what you vomit up out of your heart that makes you impure. It's, it's the heart. That's what uh, matters. It's what's in our hearts that stains us, that leaves us feeling guilty and shamed. And so Jesus is shattering the illusion that sinful people can ever truly be pure before God through outward activities. See, Jesus understood what they did not understand, that God had given all these uh, rituals, these commands about menus and various forms of cleansing to point to this deeper need of inner cleansing, the need for a spiritual cleansing. And after this conversation, uh, the disciples are completely befuddled. They want to know what is the meaning of this mysterious parable Jesus has given them. And uh, Jesus uh, points them to the heart when he says, then you are also without understanding. Don't you see what whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then he added, whatever comes out of a person's heart is what defiles him. Now, when Jesus is speaking in the heart, he is not speaking about this magnificent organ, this amazing organ that God has created that uh, pumps uh, blood with such amazing consistency. No, he's talking about the very center of our being. In the Bible, the heart is the truest part of you. It's the part of you from which your thoughts, your desires, your motivations, your passions, uh, your reflections, your words, and your actions, they all flow out of the heart. And Jesus presses this home even further uh, when he gives this catalog. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Well, how does that settle with you? Do you think people are basically good? Well, if you do, then how do you account for the fact the world's a miserable place? Why there's so much strife? between people, in families, among nations. What Jesus is saying, that all arises from within us. It's rooted in our hearts. Our hearts are evil. So let me just ask you, this is hard to do, but, but, you know, have you reflected honestly on what goes through your mind, what your real desires are, when you get quiet, perhaps, Maybe in your daydreams. Uh, Do you imagine engaging sex with someone you're not married to? Or that you'd like to take for yourself something that belongs to another person? Or that you hate somebody so much that you wish they were dead? Or you want to deceive people. You want them to think about you in a way that's not true, or you want them to believe that something happened this way when, in fact, it didn't take place that way? Do you enjoy saying negative things about people uh, to tear down their reputation and to make yourself look better? Do you look at other people with contempt, believing you are superior to them? 
Well, who can be claimed to be free of all of that? Who, who doesn't have some of this uh, in them? Isn't that the sad state of our inner lives? We are deeply stained by the evil that's in our heart. And there's no scrubbing that will remove that stain. Now, is it possible to actually have that stain removed? How is it we can have pure hearts? How do we become presentable for God? Well, Jesus doesn't explain that here, but the rest of the Gospel of Mark does. Mark's Gospel concludes with the death of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus receives our stain into his very person. He receives the evil of our thoughts and actions. He actually takes them upon himself and he receives from God the just penalty. In fact, he's so impure that he can't be crucified in the city of Jerusalem. He has to be put outside that place. Jesus, if you're to be clean, must become your holiness and your righteousness. This is how you begin a relationship with God, and it's how you maintain a relationship with God. It can only be yours, this cleansing, if you come to him and you acknowledge the truth about your inner life. No matter what people think of you, no matter how you present uh, to other people, the deep truth about your own heart, and you acknowledge that you need someone like him to do what you can't do for yourself. Turn toward him in repentance and trust. This is not just the way you begin a relationship with God. This is how you sustain a relationship with God, by growing in deep honesty about your inner life and your thoughts and desires. This means you have to end all your boasting about your record of your performance of what you uh, do as an expression of your relationship with God, of how obedient you are, of how holy you are, how different uh, you are than other people. You must rest totally and exclusively in what Jesus has done. You can't be good enough for God. His purity and holiness just exceed our grasp. We can't uh, actually conceive how pure uh, he is because we've always lived in sin and in a sinful world. We cannot make ourselves presentable by outward rituals, by our participation in the life of the church, by being uh, generous in giving to the needs of others, by acts of kindness. Even our best obedience does not make us presentable to God. It cannot cleanse our inner state. And that's why it is that religion has no power, participation in the life of the church, has no power to rid us of our self-centeredness, nor our tendency towards self-justification. Religion doesn't break the hold on self-absorption. By itself, it can't change the heart. Only Christ can do that. The Pharisees were the most religious people that have ever lived in the history of the world. And they were completely blind to the state of their hearts. And so Jesus confronts them with Isaiah's words and says, you're hypocrites. Only true confession, genuine repentance, and a complete turning to Jesus can change us.
If you don't do these things, if you don't repent, your life in some way will resemble Sarah. Sarah was rich. She inherited $20 million and had a daily income of $1,000. Now, maybe today that doesn't sound like as much as it is. I Googled it. And in 1890, a million dollars had the buying power of $28 billion, which made Sarah richer than Elon Musk today. Sarah was well known. She was the belle of New Haven, Connecticut. No social event was complete without her. Nobody held a party without inviting her. She was powerful. Uh, Her name and money would open any door in America. Colleges wanted her contributions, and you can imagine politicians sought her uh, favor. Organizations wanted her endorsement. Sarah was rich, she's actually quite pretty, well-known, and powerful, and miserable. Her only daughter died when she was five weeks old, and her husband died shortly thereafter. And she was left alone with her money, and her memories, and her guilt. Her guilt caused her to move west, and her passion for penance moved her to San Jose, California. And she bought an eight-room farmhouse and 160 adjoining acres. And she hired 16 carpenters who, and put them to work. And for the next 38 years, they worked night and day, 24 hours a day to build a mansion. That was an intriguing project. Uh, this, uh, this had an unusual floor uh, plan. Each window was to have 13 uh, panes. Um, each wall, 13 panels. Each closet, 13 hooks. Each chandelier, 13 globes. There's something utterly ghoulish about the house. The corridors snaked randomly, some leading to nowhere. One door opened to a blank wall, another opened to a 50-foot dread uh, dead drop. Uh, One set of stairs uh, led to a ceiling that had no door. There were trap doors and secret passages and a bell tower. This wasn't a retirement home. It was a castle for her past. And it only ended when Sarah died. When it was finished, the house covered six acres. Six kitchens, 13 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and the bell tower. Why did she build such a castle? Well, um, didn't she live alone? Well... If you knew someone who knew her, the answer would be, kind of, sort of, but there were visitors. According to the legend, every night at midnight, a servant would pass through a labyrinth of passages and climb up to the bell tower and ring the bell. And Sarah would go to the blue room, and there she would meet with her guest till two in the morning when the servant would go back and ring the bell once again, and she would return to her bed. Just who were these guests? Who were these phantoms? Were they, they were the Indians and soldiers killed on the U.S. frontier. They had all been killed by bullets from the most 
popular rifle of the day, the Winchester rifle. It had brought millions of dollars to Sarah Winchester. The same thing that had brought death to them. And so she spent the rest of her years in a castle of regret. And actually, you can go see this castle. It's on the National Register of Historic Places and, and tour it. It's a picture of what unresolved guilt does. Only Jesus can make you clean. Only he can take from you the guilt, the sense that you don't measure up. Have you come to him? Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Turn us to you. Enable us to forsake everything we might hold on to, that you might be our wisdom, our righteousness, and our sanctification.